Hi everyone. Welcome to Reason with Science. I'm your host Chitendra. This is a conversation with Dr. Robert Lustig. Dr. Lustig is a neuroendocrinologist with expertise in metabolism, obesity and nutrition. He is the emeritus professor of pediatrics in the division of endocrinology at UCSF. His latest book is Metabolical: The Lure and the Lies of Processed Food, Nutrition and Modern Medicine. In this conversation, we talk about role of processed food in the chronic diseases, focus of modern medicine, what is the best diet, signs of sugar and importance of nutrition. Enjoy the conversation, share and subscribe to support the podcast. Thank you for listening. Hi Rob, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Dublat. I apologize to the audience right off the bat for my voice. I'm just getting over a case of laryngitis from COVID. Yeah, the, the good thing is that you are well and fine and you are here. So that's that's great. Right. You can't get rid of me that easy. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why I wanted to start with a, with a kind of a serious question, uh, which which I think you've you've missed in your uh, 45 years of uh, career. Um, it's marathon. So when do you plan to run a marathon? Oh, <laughs> I'm afraid that that uh, bypassed me a long time ago. Uh, I have zero interest or capability of being able to run a marathon. Um, uh, that's that's not on my bucket list. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, I mean, one thing is that uh, because this this phrase, I picked it from your book, Metabolical, which is uh, for sure a great thesis on, on uh, food science, nutrition, health. Uh, so that's, that's really great. The, the important thing is, so of course, in Metabolical, you talk about different things, but the first important thing for people is health. So what is healthy means? Right, well, that's the question of the ages. You know, what does healthy mean? So I'm going to tell you that my definition of healthy is very different from pretty much every other person's def or institution's definition of healthy. So first of all, there's what does healthy mean for a human? And then there's what does healthy mean for, say, food? Because they're not necessarily the same either. Um, healthy for a human means that eight subcellular pathologies, which I outline in my book, are all working for you, not against you. Now, those eight subcellular pathologies are at the base, at the root of virtually every chronic disease that we know today. So type two diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease. These are not diseases. Oh yes, we have ICD-11 codes for them. Yes, doctors bill for them. Yes, we have medicine to sort of assuage the symptoms of each of these. But these in fact are not diseases. These are the manifestations of diseases. What belies each one of those, quote, diseases, unquote, are eight subcellular pathologies. And these are things that happen normally in the cell. And when they are working 
in your favor, you will be 110 playing tennis, i.e. healthy. When these are working against you, you will be 40 years old in a wheelchair with two stumps on dialysis waiting for your next stroke. Unhealthy. And of course, everything in between. So these eight subcellular pathologies, and in the book, I call them the hateful eight. You know, uh, no offense to uh, Quentin Tarantino. Um, but these are eight pathologies that most uh, of the general public have never heard of. And here they are. I'll just list them for you. One, glycation. Two, oxidative stress. Three, mitochondrial dysfunction. Four, insulin resistance. Five, membrane instability. Six, inflammation. Seven, methylation. And eight, autophagy. Now, there are no CD, uh, ICD-11 codes for any of those. Your doctor doesn't talk about those. You've never heard of those. Some of those your doctor's never heard of either. And the reason is because we don't have medicines for those. Because almost all of those, with one exception, involve dysfunctional mitochondria. Mitochondria are the little energy burning factories inside each of our cells that actually make the chemical energy that we need to power our cells called ATP. When our mitochondria are working properly, we don't have chronic disease. When our mitochondria are being affected uh, negatively, then we get chronic disease. And here's the bullet. Here's the reason why all of this matters. There are no medicines that make it to the mitochondria. There are no medicines that we have in our, uh, uh, you know, medical armamentarium or, you know, uh, scientific, uh, you know, pharmacopoeia that actually fix mitochondria. The only thing that fixes mitochondria is food. These diseases are foodable, not druggable. Every one of those eight diseases I mentioned earlier, type two diabetes, hypertension, et cetera, they have medicines, but those medicines are treating symptoms. They're not treating the cause because they're not treating these eight subcellular pathologies. Now, when doctors wake up to that, when they understand that all they're doing is mollifying the symptoms of a disease, not actually treating the disease. When they realize it's like giving an aspirin to a patient with a brain tumor because they have a headache, might help the headache, not gonna do a damn thing for the brain tumor. When doctors understand that, and when they understand that food actually fixes the mitochondrial problem and therefore fixes chronic disease, that's when we'll be able to actually make a difference. So for me, that's what healthy is. And from a food standpoint, any food that helps your mitochondria is healthy. So in, in that sense, what, what do we think of this phrase, uh, prevention is better than cure? Um, well, what about today's medicine then? So prevention is a dirty word, okay? Let me tell you, I was going to write a book with a colleague about prevention. 
and how it was number one, better for the patient, better for the economy, better for society, better for the planet. I was going to write an entire book on prevention. And my publisher said, we won't publish it. And why would they not publish it? Because they can't sell it. They said, not one book written about prevention in the last hundred years has even broken even. It is a money loser. People don't want to hear about prevention. People don't want to know about prevention. People want the pill. Well, the problem is there is no pill. The, I mean, on, on one hand, it is, I think, very, very important to understand the importance of prevention. I mean, I see that the fact, for example, we have traffic rules, you know, that just, I mean, why do we follow uh, lanes and, and all the traffic rules just to prevent, you know, what can happen, the, the accidents. So uh, that simply shows that, you know, where humanity should focus, but that's what, it, it's not happening, right? Well, so, so the question is, why do we have those traffic rules? Is It's to prevent accidents, of course. But the question is, who are you protecting? Are you protecting the driver or are you protecting the public? And the answer is you're protecting the public. The driver, he can, you know, go off and, you know, uh, you know, capsize his car and, you know, hit a tree and whatever else. And no one really cares. It's when an innocent person who's walking along the street or, you know, um, you know, a, a passenger in a second car gets hit who didn't do anything wrong. That's the reason why we have traffic rules and traffic laws is so that there's no externality externality being, how does your behavior affect me? Now, for decades, we had no uh, rules for tobacco. We had no rules for alcohol. We had minimal rules for various drugs. But the fact of the matter is, now we have rules for all of those because we have made the argument that your smoking affects me through, you know, secondhand smoke and asthma. Your drunk driving affects me because of car accidents. Your opioid use affects me, you know, in terms of uh, you know, risk for uh, uh, accidents and also um, uh, property values. So the question for food is how does your crappy eating affect me? And the answer is it does. It does because healthcare is going to hell in a handbasket because you can't even get into an emergency room because of all of the um, uh, uh, you know, uh, heart attacks, you know, lined up waiting for their uh, TPA infusion. Okay, now with COVID, you know, we are seeing that all of the people who are at highest mortality are the people who eat the worst because of ultra processed food, because ultra processed food actually makes COVID worse.
So the fact of the matter is we are now seeing the externalities of our you know, dietary choices over the last 50 years. And so I'm hoping that we can make a rational and evidentiary case to you know, policymakers that you know, we need to have some sort of new food rules, new food business model, new food uh, procurement and marketing uh, and uh, consumption strategies that will actually help people rather than hurt them. Yeah, and for that, basically, um, one thing that I liked uh, about your work is the that you kind of try to summarize it in this one uh, phrase. It's it's called metabolic syndrome, where uh, if people understand that, and also policymakers, if they understand that, how easy it is for public to make uh, decisions, right? Well, so the, here's the problem with metabolic syndrome. Okay. I, I believe in metabolic syndrome. Metabolic syndrome is abnormal mitochondria. All right. That's what metabolic syndrome is, is when your mitochondria don't work, you get metabolic syndrome. The problem is that the general public thinks that it's about obesity. They think, well, you get fat, you get sick. And if you get fat, it's your fault because you're a glutton and a sloth. You ate too much, you exercise too little. Why should I care whether you live or die? Because you're a glutton and a sloth. You deserve what you get. You did it to yourself. Suffer the consequences. Okay. This is very American, this notion. Okay. You know, take the risk, suffer the consequences. We call it libertarianism. All right. The question is, is it true? And I'm going to argue that, no, it's not true. It's not true at all. It is not about obesity. And the reason we know that is because 20% of obese people are healthy. They're metabolically healthy. They'll outlive you. Whereas 40% of the normal weight population have the exact same diseases as do the obese. Normal weight people get type 2 diabetes, hypertension, dyslipidemia, cardiovascular disease, cancer, dementia, fatty liver disease, polycystic ovarian disease, the diseases of metabolic syndrome also. Now, it's true they get it at a lower frequency. That's true. 40% versus 80%. So obesity is a risk factor. I don't argue that. That's true. But if normal weight people get it too, how can it be about behavior? This actually looks more like exposure. This looks more like cholera or tuberculosis or uh, uh, you know, COVID-19 for that matter, okay? where some people in a uh, population will get it and some people won't. So the fact of the matter is this notion that the problem is due to obesity is just wrong. It's just plain wrong. We have biochemical uh, you know, exceptions that explain the rule, and we have epidemiologic exceptions that explain the rule. Bottom line is this notion that it's about obesity is a mistake. Everyone is at risk of metabolic syndrome. And in fact, a paper came out in 2019 that quantified this and said that 88% of American adults had metabolic dysfunction, 88%, seven out of every eight. 
And overweight and obese is only 60 to 65%. So there are plenty of thin, sick people running around with the same diseases for the same reasons. They're just not obese. So this is why we need to educate the public. This is why we need to be able to um, uh, bring the science to bear on the policy. And that's my job. One of the reason of this notion is uh, the fact that most or a lot of people, they think a calorie is calorie. I mean, it can be uh, a propaganda or it can be simply unaware of the doctors and medical personnel. Um, right. So is it true? So I have now written two books that explode the idea that a calorie is a calorie. So a calorie is a calorie came from the food industry. It didn't come from science, right? What happened was in 1916, a scientist, uh, a physiologist, not physiologist, a, a, a chemist by the name of Wilbur Atwater exploded fat or protein or carbohydrate in a bomb calorimeter. And he got nine calories per gram for fat, and he got four calories per gram for protein, and he got four calories per gram for carbohydrate. And so he said, fat is more energy dense, which is true if you explode it in a bomb calorimeter. That is true. But we are not bomb calorimeters. Okay. The fact is, we there are certain fats we don't explode at all. We don't even, you know, uh, uh, cut them up into little, you know, two carbon fragments, like for instance, omega-3s. There are also fats we can't cut up into two carbon fragments called trans fats. Omega-3s are the single best thing you can put in your body and they're protected from being chewed up by your uh, metabolism because they're so important because they're anti-inflammatory, they're anti-Alzheimer's, they help preserve cell membranes. Whereas trans fats, which were put into all the food, you know, for a hundred years, are the devil incarnate. And the reason they were put into the food was because the bacteria can't cut the double bond of the trans fat. You know, it's a trans double bond. You know, you, you do protein-protein interactions, you understand this concept. Okay, we don't have the enzyme. Well, turns out not only do the bacteria not have the enzyme, but we don't have the enzyme. Our mitochondria are refurbished bacteria. They even have their own bacterial DNA. Fact is, we don't have the capability of cutting that double bond either. And so when you try to digest a trans fat, you reach the trans double bond, you can't go any further. Now that stuff basically lines your arteries in your liver and causes metabolic syndrome. So the concept that different calories can be fungible, you know, exchanged one for another, okay, is just wrong, okay? It was a mistake to start with, but it was a mistake that the food industry was happy to pile on. And the reason was because it assuaged their culpability for selling us calories that kill us. So which calories are the worst is really what the question is. And the answer is any calorie that raises your, your, your insulin level is the worst. 
And the calories that raise your insulin level are the following. Fructose, the sweet molecule in sugar. Trans fats. Branched chain amino acids. Leucine, isoleucine, valine, which are from corn-fed beef, chicken, fish, processed food. And finally, alcohol. Those are the four foodstuffs that are the worst because those poison the mitochondria directly. Those are not insulin regulated. And by laying down fat in the liver, those cause this phenomenon called insulin resistance. And it's been shown now in many, many studies that these are the, the biggest bad guys on the block when it comes to chronic disease. And whether it's epidemiologic studies or mechanistic studies or you know, uh, uh, withdrawal studies, bottom line, those are the worst. There's another uh, component of food, which is also important, but it's the opposite. It's too little instead of too much. And it's too little fiber. Well, fiber, people think that's the stuff you throw in the garbage after you juice the fruit. That's not true. Turns out the fiber is the food for your microbiome. It's the food for the bacteria in your intestine. And if you don't feed your bacteria, your bacteria will feed on you. It will actually strip the mucin layer off your intestinal epithelial cells, which are protecting them. And now you've got bacterial apposition right onto those intestinal epithelial cells, causing inflammation, leading to a phenomenon called leaky gut, which ends up causing the stuff that's in your intestine that's supposed to stay in your intestine to end up seeping through the wall of your intestine into your bloodstream, going to your liver and causing insulin resistance. So fiber is good. Fiber protects your intestine and your liver from the onslaught of all of this other junk that you're eating. But the problem is processed food is fiberless food. So it's the reason why autoimmune disease, it's the reason why inflammatory bowel disease, it's the reason why irritable bowel syndrome are all increasing in frequency is because of this phenomenon of leaky gut and inflammation from the gut into the bloodstream and especially into the liver. So this is not accounted for by calories because fiber doesn't have any calories. This is irrelevant to calories. The point is, to be metabolically healthy, you have to have a happy microbiome. And if you are eating ultra-processed food, by definition, you have an unhappy microbiome, having nothing to do with calories. So a calorie is not a calorie, because if it came with its inherent fiber, that calorie wasn't for you, it was for your bacteria. Well, I remember your mantra uh, of... And I think this can be a mantra of 21st century, um, protect the liver, feed the gut. That, that's, that's what I say in my book, Metabolical, right there. Maybe I should put it down. <laughs> um, <clears throat> is those are the two things that are the most important in terms of determining whether any given food is healthy. If any food does both, protects the liver and feeds the gut, it's healthy. If any given food does neither, 
then it's poison. And if any given food does one or the other, but not both, then it's somewhere in the middle between food and poison. And that's what the empiric data actually show. Example of that is juice. So juice, you've taken the fiber out. So the sugar is still there. It floods the liver. So it's definitely not protecting the liver. The question is, is it feeding the gut? And the answer is partially. And the reason is because there are two kinds of fiber. They're soluble and insoluble. So when you juice the fruit, you lose the insoluble fiber. But the soluble fiber is still there. It can still feed the gut. And so the data on juice shows that it's not as bad as, say, soda. But it's still way worse than water. So you get the idea. It's somewhere in the middle. So let's look at the, um, all the arguments again. So what we are saying is, or what we are discussing here now is the, the, the fact that chronic diseases are increasing all around the world, basically. And um, modern medicine is focused more on cure rather than on lifestyle or basically the food that we are eating. Um, I mean, lifestyle is, of course, it's another part, but <clears throat> let's let's uh, talk about food. And so when we are talking about food, it's, it's mainly what we are eating uh, of all the different, basically, uh, components that, that we are talking about, which are carbs, uh, car um, fats, um, Protein. proteins, and of course, fiber is another component fiber. which people don't talk about it. Right. Right. Um, fiber, fiber is the missing ingredient. Yeah. And people don't think that fiber is important because if you don't digest fiber, then like, why do you need it? And the answer is you don't need it. Your, your bacteria do. And if your bacteria don't get it, then you're going to be sorry <laughs> because you did need it. And so that's, that, that's kind of the, the, the way this works. So when you look at the food that we are currently eating, it is high sugar, low fiber, high sugar for palatability, low fiber for shelf life. That's called processed food. What we need is the exact opposite. What we need is low sugar, high fiber. That's called real food. Food that came out of the ground or animals that ate what came out of the ground. But that's not what the food industry is selling. The processed food industry, and those are the logos that you recognize in the store, whether it be here in the United States or in Europe or anywhere else around the world, those same logos are you know, available because there are basically 10 conglomerates that control 90% of the food supply in the world. And they have enough money to be able to advertise. So those are the ones you've heard of. Those uh, companies are processing food. They're not supplying real food. And that's the problem. So what do you do to get the food industry to improve its fare, to actually help people? And this is where economics comes in. This is where the science ultimately meets the policy. And this is what I'm trying to do. Um, by impressing upon both the, you know, the science community and the uh, you know, political uh, cognoscente 
you know, how much money is to be lost by not changing as opposed to changing? I think many changes we also kind of do uh, through culturally, you know, um, because, um, for example, many at many places in many countries, you see here in Europe, you can see that the cycling is uh, quite common. Uh, uh, we can see Netherlands or Switzerland or even Germany, Austria, Austria, where uh, people bike a lot, right? So, uh, and and the fact that it's it's there, you know, so you will see like it's it it's happening uh, in, well, in general. Well, I have nothing against exercise. Exercise is good. It's one of the single best things you can do for yourself. And I don't argue that. However, remember those eight subcellular pathologies that we talked about earlier, glycation, oxidative stress, et cetera. When you look at those eight, exercise actually only helps four of them. Four of those will occur irrespective of exercise. So what does that mean? It means you cannot outrun a bad diet. So exercise can help. I don't argue that. But in fact, if you look at the metabolic signatures of exercisers who do not eat well, who eat you know, junk food or, and drink sports drinks, et cetera, okay, they are not as healthy as the people who do. So in fact, you cannot outrun a bad diet. Food still matters. Now, if you believe a calorie is a calorie, then you're gonna say, well, I can burn them off, but you're still gonna have glycation. You're still gonna have oxidative stress. You're still gonna have mitochondrial dysfunction. You're still gonna have membrane instability, okay? Those things are not going to get better just because you exercised. So food still plays a central role. Yeah, so the, the, the point was that if we kind of understand what is good food or what is good diet, and that kind of we already start like embedding in the culture, the, the, like, you know, if the culture follows a specific good diet, I think that, that changes, of course, the, the thinking of policymakers, but also the food industry in general, right? Well, well yes and no. You know, yes, if we followed the precepts of a good diet, but the problem is we're not supplying the impetus for people to be able to access a good diet. Here in the United States, for instance, we have food deserts. People can't, don't have access to good food. Right? In addition, we subsidize all of the stuff that's killing us. Corn, wheat, soy, sugar. Now, if you supply subsidies for certain items, what you're doing is you're distorting the market, okay? And if you're distorting the market, the market has to break even. So if you're supplying the subsidies for those four things, that means you're raising prices on everything else. And that's why fresh vegetables and fresh fruits cost so much is because the money is going to funding the subsidy, which makes no sense. Why should you subsidize the group of uh, nutrients that kill you? You should be doing the opposite. You should be subsidizing those nutrients that actually save your life. Because ultimately, 
that's an investment. You're going to get it back in terms of lower health care costs and expenditures. Right? But the problem is the food industry controls what happens in Congress and Parliament and you know, throughout the European Union. And so this is something that has to you know, be uh, altered, has to be fixed. And that's going to require a lot of groundswell of, uh, of public support, which is where education comes in. And that's what we're doing now. Indeed, yeah. So what do we, um, how, how do we think of the genetics, um, the role of genetics in, in the case of metabolic syndrome and what do we eat? Do you think so, there are some inclinations uh, from genetic side? So if you look at the GWAS studies, the genome-wide association studies that were done back in 2009 to 2015, Looking at whether or not there was a genetic component to metabolic syndrome, bottom line, about 15% of metabolic syndrome can be explained by genetics. One five. That's not that much. The rest of it, 85%, they called dark matter. That means the environment. Okay. So, in fact, metabolic syndrome is minimally genetic, not maximally genetic. That means that there are certain people, yes, who are at greater risk. I'm not saying there aren't, okay? But those people, by changing their diet, can make an enormous difference in terms of their uh, risk for developing metabolic syndrome and therefore early death. Conversely, those people with good genetics because 85% is still environmental, can still poison themselves just as easily by eating a bad diet. So the fact is, genetics actually plays a minor role in this problem. Now, people say for obesity, the data show that 50% are genetics. That's true. 50% of obesity is genetics, but metabolic syndrome is not obesity. I've already told you that, and I've already explained why. The reason, the reason that you have this dichotomy is obesity measures the fat you can see. It measures the fat that the scale picks up. It measures subcutaneous or big butt fat. Turns out that's not the fat that causes metabolic syndrome. The fat that causes metabolic syndrome is the visceral fat or the belly fat or the liver fat. And those are not picked up on the scale. A famous study was done of identical twins in Finland, uh, Rottensteiner from uh, Obesity 2016. I love this study. They took <clears throat> 100 pairs of identical twins, exactly the same DNA of these, you know, 100 pairs. One uh, twin was active. The other twin was sedentary, right? And they wanted to figure out what was different about the two twins when one is active and one is sed sedentary with the same genetic background. And it turned out their weights were the same. Their weights were the same. So the BMI didn't explain anything, but 
Then they did DEXA scanning and they did MRS, magnetic resonance spectroscopy of different fat depots, and they did glucose tolerance testing. And what they showed was that the more visceral and liver fat that one twin had over the other, that was what led to uh, uh, you know, uh, worsened uh, biochemical parameters for disease. So the genetics only controls the subcutaneous fat. The genetics do not control the visceral or the liver fat. What controls those? Stress and diet. So stress and diet ultimately impact everyone, irrespective of genetics. And people don't understand this. People think, well, I get on the scale, my, my you know, weight looks good for my height. You know, I have nothing to worry about. Garbage. That's, that's a mistake. That's another mistake. And unfortunately, it's a mistake that doctors continue to promulgate. So let's say that um, if we consider this 85% of uh, environmental factor, which is our diet, and uh, so you know, most of the times we are not conscious of uh, diet uh, or of what we are eating in general. But once we become conscious and we start searching for information or, you know, all the from through the different uh, sources, what we see is that there are different diets. First of all. <laughs> so there are different diets. However, any diet that is composed of real food works. So I'm going to name some diets for you, all right? Uh, keto, uh, uh, paleo, uh, 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 traditional Japanese, uh, 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 Mediterranean, uh, uh, vegan, okay? There are a whole host of diets that have been shown in the literature to have beneficial effects on mitigation of chronic disease. But every diet that I just mentioned is a real food diet. Now, some of them are low fat, some of them are low carb. My colleague, Christopher Gardner, who's a nutritionist at Stanford, did a study called the Diet Fits Study. It was in the JAMA 2018. And what he showed was it didn't matter if you move people onto a high fat diet or a low fat diet, as long as it was a real food diet, patients got better. So it doesn't, you know, in the, in the aggregate, you know, as a whole, in terms of the means, it doesn't matter if it's a high fat diet or a low fat diet. It doesn't matter if it's keto or vegan. It doesn't matter if, you know, the, the protein source is, you know, animal or vegetable. None of that matters as long as it's food that came out of the ground or animals that ate the food that came out of the ground. The minute it was a processed food diet, that's when people got sick. So I am not for or against any diet. You can eat the diet that you're most comfortable with. If you like meat, go for it. If you, you know, want to save the planet, quote unquote, you know, um, and you think that eating plants, you know, is going to be better because of the water and the and methane, etc. Okay, have at it. Okay. But you can eat vegan badly, 
Coke, Doritos, and Oreos are all vegan. Okay. And you can eat keto badly as well. All right. Because a lot of things that are, they say are on a keto diet, once you actually eat them, it raises your insulin and stops the ketones. And then you're actually just on a high fat, medium carbohydrate diet. And then that's just, that's like the worst diet you can be on. So the bottom line is different diets really actually are not different. They're all the same. And what they are, are low insulin diets. A high fiber diet becomes a low insulin diet. Okay. A low carb diet becomes a low insulin diet. So you can choose whichever one you like best. So this notion that there's a diet for everyone, you know, I don't care. I don't care. The only thing that I care about is that processed food is a high insulin diet and processed food is the diet that causes disease. That's interesting. Uh, what do you think about intermittent fasting? So intermittent fasting works. The question is, why does it work? And the answer is, we, we actually know. Intermittent fasting, so that means that you, you've basically got 16 hours between meals. What it does is it gives your liver a chance to burn off the fat that had accumulated during the previous eight hours. And so what it does is by burning off that fat, because the liver will burn that fat preferentially, you maintain your insulin sensitivity. Therefore you can keep your insulin down, which is the goal. Now, if you have fatty liver, that's a great thing to do. And I'm all for it. The question is, why did you get the fatty liver in the first place? And the answer is because he ate a crappy diet. It's a family uh, uh, podcast. Because okay? he ate a crappy diet. If you didn't eat the crappy diet, you wouldn't have the fatty liver and you wouldn't have to do the uh, intermittent fasting in the first place. And it's actually been shown now that um, intermittent fasting works on patients with fatty liver because it's burning off that fat. So it is a rational maneuver if you're already sick. But if you're not sick, it's not going to add benefit uh, going forward. Would it maintain like your health, which is, I think. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I have nothing against intermittent fasting. Um, it, it, it makes perfect sense, particularly for those who are already, you know, who already have metabolic syndrome. But the thing that really makes the most uh, uh, benefit in terms of metabolic syndrome is get rid of the sugar. So the, so the major villain is sugar or it's the, the major added villain. sugar? It's not the only villain. It's the major villain. And the reason is because sugar has been added to all of the processed food in the grocery store on purpose because the food industry learned that when they put it in, you buy more. It's their hook because sugar is addictive. Works on the same area of the brain as cocaine, heroin, nicotine, alcohol. Right? And also shopping, gambling, you know, social media, pornography, all work on the nucleus accumbens. Sugar works on the nucleus accumbens also. So bottom line, food industry found a legal addiction. And so they put sugar into everything on purpose because number one, it makes the food taste better. And number two, it keeps you coming back for more. So sugar is the 2000 pound gorilla 
in the nutrition story. It's the thing that we have to address first. Now, as I said earlier, there are four things that make your insulin go up. Trans fats, but they're coming out of our food because we now know they're a problem. Alcohol, and we now know there's no safe amount of alcohol. We used to think that a little was good. We actually now have the data to show even a little bit can be problematic in terms of longevity. And branched-chain amino acids, which are, again, corn-fed beef, chicken, and fish, which you know is more processed food than, than real food. Because if you're feeding the animals grass, you know, they don't, you, you notice that there, there's less marbling. That's, that's intramyocellular lipid. So those animals are, you know, metabolically ill when they eat, when they eat corn. In the same way we get uh, ill when we eat corn. So branched-chain amino acids, alcohol, trans fats, sugar. Of those, sugar's the hook that the uh, food industry uses. Let's talk a little bit about the real foods itself. So what do you mean by that? So are you talking about more uh, vegetables like salad or cooked vegetables? Or you're talking about, or what about the canned vegetables or frozen vegetables, etc.? cetera? Right. So um, number one, you can freeze vegetables, but when you do, their texture changes significantly. Okay, take an orange, vegetable or fruit, doesn't matter. Take an orange, put it in your freezer overnight. Take it out, let it thaw on the counter. Try to eat it. See what you get. You get mush. Why do you get mush? Because the ice crystals that formed from the freezing macerate the cell wall, let all the water rush in. Food industry knows that. So what do they do? Squeeze it and freeze it. Now it lasts forever. They've turned an orange, which is fruit, into frozen concentrated orange juice, which is a commodity. You can sell it on the commodities exchange. The definition of a commodity is storable food. So yes, you can freeze vegetables, but it's not gonna taste like fresh vegetables because the fiber is macerated because of the ice crystals. So that's a problem. I mean, are the vitamins and the micronutrients still there? Yeah, sure. But, you know, people tend not to like them very much, but you can do it, all right? Um, um, other methods for, uh, you know, uh, storing food, you know, like drying. So drying, Fruits, for instance, that'll work because it preserves the fiber. Now, the water in the uh, fruit actually has mechanical effects on the stomach to increase satiety. So you tend to eat less of whole fruit than you do of dried fruit. So there's still some advantages. But, you know, there are methods of getting around this. There are methods of being able to uh, preserve food uh, that will work in terms of uh, food processing and still keep prices low. Liquid nitrogen is another way. You can use liquid nitrogen to freeze it and the ice crystals won't form 
because the temperature came down so rapidly, didn't that give it time to form? So there are things you can do, but it's going to require a change on the part of the food industry to, you know, to embrace and encompass those. Uh, let's also talk a little bit about educating public and how this can help medical system. I mean, of course, because people can follow the, these diets, they can have proper meals, food, they can take, take care of their lifestyle, but at the end, there'll be problems and we'll, we'll, we, then we will need people, our medical system, right? So how do we uh, ensure this, like educating public, but also having a good communication with the medical system? Well, so <clears throat> if you train, if you teach the public what the problem is, the assumption is that the public will, you know, take that on. All right. Let me give you four examples of how we've trained the public and things have gotten better from a public health standpoint because we've trained the public. Here are the four. Ready? Bicycle helmets and seatbelts. Smoking in public places. Drunk driving. Condoms in bathrooms. 30 years ago, if a legislator stood up in a state house or a parliament or, you know, the European Union in Brussels and advocated for any legislation for any one of those four things, they'd have gotten laughed right out of town. Nanny state, liberty interest, get out of my kitchen, get out of my bathroom, get out of my car. Today, they're all facts of life in America and in Europe. And if you don't click your seatbelt before you pull out of your driveway, your kids will scream at you. Okay, 30 years, 30 years. All of these were a problem. Now, none of them are a problem. <clears throat> How come? And why did it take 30 years? We taught the children the children grew up and they voted and the naysayers, the ones screaming nanny state, they're dead. That's why this is a generational shift. And generational shifts occur all the time. But it takes 30 years. Because you don't really change people's minds. Okay, what you do is you change the next generation's mind before they have an opinion. That's why this is a generational shift. So the question you're asking me, Dr. Dublad, is when is this generational shift on food going to happen? And the answer is it's happening now. Slow. You know, if it's a 30-year cycle, I would say we're about eight to nine years into it because it was around 2012, 2013 that the ground started to shift when obesity became such a problem. And when the information about sugar started coming out, that's when people started paying attention. So we're about nine, nine years or so into it right now. So we still have a long way to go, but if you go into a schoolroom today and ask kids, which you know, food is the worst for you. They'll tell you sugar. 
They used to be fat. Now they'll tell you sugar. And we have the data to show that this, you know, is changing. So we are teaching the children and they will ultimately inherit, you know, what we've taught them. And this is, this is the work. This is what we do. One of the things um, thing here is the, the fact that, um, I mean, of course, the population size is increasing and all, all the other things uh, that we can talk about. So we have more mouths to feed in general. Um, and then, um, so here we are talking about quality of food. That's the, the second thing. Um, and the third thing is what has changed because a lot of people, they would argue that, oh, I mean, before we were eating the same thing, of course, now it's more refined or more uh, like in, in a way, like more processed. And, and, and I think that's, that's what the point is. So what's, what, what do we answer them? Well, <clears throat> what I can say is that the food industry has not had any regulation whatsoever. So they continue to put out the exact same stuff that they put out 50 years ago. And the reason they do that is because it's cheaper for them to do that. Because sugar is cheap, because refined carbohydrate is cheap, and because they're both subsidized. As long as it's cheap and as long as it's subsidized, and as long as there's no rules, they're going to keep doing what they do. And they're going to try to keep convincing you that their food is healthy. And the reason they thought they were, they got away with it was because we thought fat was the problem. So they told you that all the food in the store was low fat. So you thought it was healthy. We now know that it was the exact opposite. So how are we going to change the food industry? so that they stop providing problem food and start providing good food that's actually healthy. I think personally that the way to do that, the single way to do that, people ask me all the time, if you had a magic wand and you could do one thing, what would it be? And I have an answer for that. Get rid of food subsidies. I think that until we get rid of food subsidies, we will not be able to solve this problem. And as soon as we do get rid of food subsidies, we will be able to solve this problem. I think food subsidies is the single biggest um, obstacle to ref, you know, re revising the food system. Once we get rid of subsidies, then the food industry will need a new business, a new economic model. And what we can do is we can then get them to sign on to a um, economic model where they make money by doing the right thing instead of the wrong thing. They don't care what they sell. They've told me so. They've told me directly. They said, we don't care what we sell. We just have to sell because that's how they make money. So why can't they make money selling good food well they can but right now selling good food doesn't make them nearly the money that selling bad food does and that's because of subsidies fix the subsidies 
fix the food business model, fix health. That's what I say. That means also we should be uh, careful in what we are buying, right? Like, because if the demand increases from the public side, that will also kind of change the... Uh, absolutely. So, you know, the bottom line is that the food industry would change on a dime if all of a sudden everybody stopped eating processed food. Okay. If we all boycotted processed food, the food industry basically says we give the public what it wants, but it also says, if you build it, they will come. And that's because sugar is addictive. So they actually do both. Bottom line is you vote every single day. You vote three times a day. You vote 21 times a week. You vote with your fork. And if you changed what you ate and everyone else changed what they ate, then the food industry would have to change what they sell. And that's why education is so important because it softens the playing field for changes in uh, supply and changes in uh, marketing that, uh, that can then uh, actually effectuate uh, real change. So I kept uh, deserts for the end and you are a supporter of deserts. So I, um, I, yes, people say to me all the time, you know, you're a food Nazi and I am not a food Nazi. That is absolutely not true. I am not a food Nazi. I am for dessert for dessert. I am not for dessert for breakfast, lunch, snacks, and dinner. The American Heart Association says that the upper limit of added sugar before you get sick is 25 grams for women, which is six teaspoons, and 37 and a half grams for men, which is nine teaspoons. Six teaspoons or nine teaspoons, all right? We are currently consuming 17 teaspoons, and we used to consume 22 teaspoons of added sugar per day. Okay, it's gone down a little bit because of the obesity epidemic. But 17 teaspoons is still way over six to nine by double to triple. Point is, we are still poisoning ourselves. We are, have not gotten away from that. Dessert is high sugar. Okay, make it a good one. Make it a great one. Make it a homemade one where you can control the amount of sugar. All right. And by all means, have at it. I had some rice pudding last night that we made ourselves. Right? The question is, what's in your breakfast? And in America, the National School Breakfast Program 29% of all children get their breakfast from the National School Breakfast Program. That is a bowl of Fruit Loops and a glass of orange juice. That is 41 grams of sugar. American Heart Association says three teaspoons for children. That's 12 grams and that's for the whole day. This is 41 grams and it's just breakfast. What about the rest of the day? The point is, you should not be having dessert for breakfast. You should not be having dessert for lunch. You should not be having dessert for dinner. You should have dessert for dessert. 
So if you are having yogurt, you are having dessert. If you are having Chinese chicken salad, you are having dessert. If you are having any processed food, you are having dessert. I am for dessert, for dessert. I was uh, reading about one of the scientists and he said that longer your food lasts, uh, shorter you will. That's but I think like exactly right. from, from your uh, work, uh, the, the, the message would be longer your food lasts uh, and, and especially the insulin lasts, right. the shorter you will, right? So That's exactly right. And the reason is <clears throat> because if your food lasts long, that means the bacteria didn't chew it up. Well, again, our mitochondria or refurbished bacteria means you can't chew it up, which means it's only going to make you sick. That's exactly right. So uh, thank you so much for accepting the invitation and uh, for the great conversation. And thank you for your service. I mean, this is, uh, and running this marathon of educating people, you know, this is- <laughs> that's, this is the best. that's my marathon, yeah. right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> so thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Dr. Dublin. Yeah.